0: Canonicity, that's our topic today. This is systematic theology part one. There's the four parts that we need to work through because systematic theology is large. It's a lot to go through. There's a lot to teach on from the Bible, obviously. So we're still in bibliology. We'll do that for a couple more weeks, I believe, on the schedule. Actually, next week might be the last one on bibliology. Then we start the doctrine of God. And we'll work through the doctrine of God through about the third or fourth week of January. And then we go into part two, semester two, and there'll be another class offered that morning as well. So you'll have to make a decision sometimes here on what equipping classes you want to take. And that's fine. You don't have to feel like because you took part one, you have to stay in all four parts for, for two years. We do have a book giveaway this morning. I found I had two copies of this. So, The Christian Life, a doctrinal introduction by Sinclair Ferguson. So, this is uh, the book on. Sort of how we should grow in the Christian life. Our relationship with sin. There's a chapter on election, union with Christ, justification, and so on. Even if you don't win it in this giveaway, you should pick it up in the bookstore. It looks a little different today. This is They republish them every so many years with a new cover. But still the same content. St. Clair Ferguson. Good, solid guy. Only thing I don't like is his view of baptism, but that's okay. He's good on... He doesn't write on baptism, so that's fine. That I know of. All right, so here's your question from last week what is the argument for inerrancy inerrancy the bible has no errors who wants the book okay no that's not the that's not the only part of the argument that that could be worked in though it's god's word god cannot lie therefore the bible is true okay derek you want it do you have this derek if you if you ever have it when i give it away we can we can pass it on to the number 2 answer I do try to give book giveaways, but not every week to keep you on your toes. So you got to be here every week so that you never know when the book's going to get given out. So, all right, let's open in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful to be here this morning. It's a time to learn from your word, to learn what the Bible has to say about itself. And today we look a bit at church history as well. Help us, Lord, to understand your word is preserved for us. You did not let it somehow drift away, slip away during the last 2,000 years. We have your word with us today, and I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you that you guide us with your light, that you shed light upon this dark world as we walk through it, and I pray that you would continue to work through us to take the gospel out to others and to tell them of the truth of the gospel, which is in Scripture. We pray this in the name of our Lord. Amen. So if you're doing the reading along in this book, which I highly recommend that you do, Grab this big thing. Yeah, I know, it's a fat book, but hey, as a Christian, we do hard things, right? And hard things means, you know, read a big book with 66 chapters. You can read this. You can read this. Not that the two are equal. This is contained in here. We have a lot of verses in the book, but it opens up these theological topics. Who remembers the definition of systematic theology or the question that systematic theology asks? What does the Bible say about... Blank. That's basically systematic theology in a nutshell. What does the Bible say about, and then insert what you want to know about. Now, some things, you know, it it doesn't matter, right? What does the Bible say about green grass? Well, it has a lot to say about green grass occasionally, but that's not really a theology. What does the Bible say about sin? That's a theological topic. What does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about itself? What does the Bible say about Christ, the Holy Spirit, salvation, man? Angels, end times, the church, all of those are topics of systematic theology. So what we're looking at today is canonicity. Canonicity. This Bible is a canon of books. It has books in it that are part of the biblical canon. And outside of this, there are no other books that are part of the biblical canon. So this is 100% the canon. There are other words God said. There are other words Jesus said but they weren't written down and put into the Bible. And this really is a broader topic, if you're reading, that speaks on preservation. How God has preserved his word. Certainly, if God can inspire, which means breathe out his word through men, men wrote the Bible, moved by the Spirit, and they spoke the words of God. So that's our definition of inspiration, right from 2 Peter 1. Here we have, what about today? It's been 2,000 years almost since the last book was written. Do we have the right Bible today? Did something get left out? These books they keep finding in the desert sands, buried in these little jars, and they pull them out every so often. Should we add those to our Bible? Should we add some new prophecy that a prophet has to our Bible? Let's look at the doctrine of canonicity. And this is how God has preserved his word down through the ages until today. So a lot of this is going to be church history. I'm not going to apologize for that because I love church history. And sometimes we bring in historical topics to systematic theology. So let's define what canonicity is. This is really important because if you have a Catholic friend or family member or maybe Eastern Orthodox or Mormon, or somebody who's adding their prophecies all the time to God's Word, you need to know what canonicity is. Because all those people have extra revelation they add to the Bible. So, canon, or canon in the Greek, is a word that originally meant a reed, but later came to be a measuring rod. So, basically, a, a yardstick. That's what we called it. My grandma would go get the yardstick when we were bad, tell us she was going to beat us with a yardstick. So, it's, it's like a ruler, and that becomes the standard by which you measure everything. So the, the cannon, not two ends in the middle here, like an artillery weapon. No, this is a rule that you would measure everything else by. A ruler, a yardstick. And then you'd be able to see, okay, do we have the right size when we're building something or when we're figuring out what is the standard unit of measure. So it refers in Bibliology to the church's recognition, very important word there, and acceptance of the books of Scripture as God inspired the Word. So, here and on page one twenty, I'm getting that quote. That's from Biblical Doctrine. The Church's recognition: the Church did not just suddenly come up with this in three hundred A.D. And acceptance. So they recognize this is Scripture. They accepted it as Scripture. It's God's inspired Word. So it asks this question, how do we know which book should be in the Bible? How do we know that? How has the church determined this issue? Did somebody just wake up one day and say, hey, this looks like a good book to add to the Bible. Let's throw that in there. Hey, this looks like a good one to cut out. Let's throw this one out. I mean, people have done that in church history. Uh, Marcion was a heretic in the early church, and he cut out a lot of the Bible. He didn't like all that Jewish stuff, so he cut out 95% of the Bible. Thomas Jefferson did something similar in early America. He published his own Bible, which was the moral teachings of Jesus. Pretty much the Sermon on the Mount and a few other things that he found. And people still today, they, they may not get scissors to their Bible, but they try to remove it and just say, we're not going to cover that part. Or, or that was Paul. You know, One author said Romans 9, one commentator said Romans 9 is so unlike the gospel that somebody must have snuck in and wrote that for Paul. Because it talks about election and reprobation and that's just not Paul. So Paul just, you know, accidentally got up from his desk and somebody came and wrote some things in. And then he came back, you know, and, and continued writing. Should Romans be in the Bible? These are the questions we're asking today. So why does it matter? Well, there's a lot of attacks on biblical authority by secular scholars, liberal scholars, people who say they're Christians and they're trying to undermine the Christian faith. And they go after all kinds of things in the Bible. They say the Bible has errors, and your question is always going. To, your first question is always going to be, "What? Show me which error you're talking about." And 99 percent of the time, that'll end the discussion. You can move on to the gospel and their sin. But if they do have an error, then open your Bible and start talking about it and say, "You know, hey, I don't have all the information on this. Your translation is different than mine. Let me let me do some research." That's going to be a rare occasion that that happens. Though. the the secular scholars are trying to say that the Bible's not God's word. Or they're saying it's not sufficient. You need science. You need all these other things to understand the Bible. You need psychology to understand the Bible. You need all these things. And then here's here's a subtle way to prove that an apostle didn't write a book of the New Testament. It's supposed to sort of eject that teaching from our minds. So that part where Paul says women shouldn't be pastors, today the easiest way to deal with that, there's two ways really. People say that was cultural, doesn't apply to today even though he goes back to Adam and Eve to, to base that on. But the second way is to say, well, Paul didn't write that. So we don't, have to, we don't have to obey it. Somebody else wrote it later. This represents second century Christianity. So that's really what we're talking about here is, if Paul wrote it, it should be in there if it's scripture. Prevents false teaching? Guess where a lot of false teaching comes from. Now you can twist scripture and come up with false teaching. But another common way is just to add things to the Bible. The Book of Mormon. The Doctrine and the Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, the, 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 what is it? the Watchtower Society, is Jehovah's Witnesses. Purgatory comes from, is it 2nd Maccabees? 1st and 2nd Maccabees or something like that. Maybe 3rd Maccabees, I can't remember. Not a book of the Bible, but they have added it in the Catholic Church to the Bible. So here's some false teaching today. They, they found a while back some books in the desert sands of Egypt. And these were probably meant to be thrown in the trash. It probably was the trash, you know. What's this false teaching? We found a, It's like when you find a certain false teachers today and you say, I don't want to sell this back to the used bookstore because somebody else might get it. So you toss it in the trash and then you take the garbage out. Well, here's a, here's a trash can that didn't fall apart over time in Egypt. And so they find these. Oh, the Gospel of Thomas. It's a new gospel. It's written by Thomas or Judas. And it has all these Gnostic false teachings in it. And people liberals will say, we should add that to the Bible. Or they will say, like Bart Ehrman, there were many types of Christianity. And it was just kind of a war between the different types of Christianity. And one finally ruled the day because they got rid of everybody else. And that's our Christianity. But he says, look, there were other kinds back then. Now these were later writings. These weren't written by Thomas the Apostle. These weren't written by Judas. These are Gnostic writings. Second Maccabees, that's that's the view of purgatory. I had it in my slide there. This is called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. We'll look at Apocrypha in a moment. Evangelism. Mormons need to know that where they're looking for the source of truth is added books. They've added to God's word. Here are some more Doctrine and Covenants. Book of Mormon, Jehovah's Witnesses Watchtower. Andrew Holden says materials such as the Watchtower are almost as significant to the witnesses as the Bible, since the information is presented as the inspired work of theologians. And they are therefore believed to contain as much truth as biblical text. So you need to know when you're talking to these folks that they're not just bringing along a commentary. This is equal to scripture. And it doesn't do any good to say, well, you know, they, they love Jesus and they're, they're kin to me and I grew up with them. What's their view of Scripture? If they think that's equal to Scripture, that's going to be an issue, obviously, in whatever they say. And in your apologetics with them, and your evangelism with them, and so on. Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, they've added Old Testament books. The cults today, and the Gnostics, they have all kinds of Gnostic writings, they say, that go way back. So the question is, is the canon open or closed? Can we add new books to the Bible? Do Pentecostal and charismatic apostles give us new revelation? Or is it closed? I mean, is it still open? Can we just take what the Kansas City prophets are saying today and add it? Or what's the guy in Bethel Church? Bill something? Bill Johnson? Should we take what Bill Johnson says and add it? You know, there used to be an apostle. I don't know if he still calls himself this. Right across the highway in a church on 10. And he was called the apostle of the church. Should we add what he says to the Bible? Who gets to decide what's in the Bible? Does the Pope get to decide? Does the denomination get to decide? Because typically that's how we think, right? Oh, you're part of this denomination and they recognize this. And does the charismatic church get to determine what's in the Bible? Here's a big one. Was the New Testament canon put together at the Nicene Council under Emperor Constantine the Great in A.D. 325? Anybody heard this one? Y'all, y'all that took my church history class, what's the answer here? no. No, but the Da Vinci Code, book and movie, said this is what happened. And they convinced a lot of people. And you'll hear today, well, the Bible wasn't put together until the 300s. And that was by the Emperor Constantine at the Nicene Council. But if you study the Nicene Council, nothing came up about books of the Bible because it had already been recognized. All the books of Scripture had already been recognized by then. And Constantine had nothing to do with, I mean, he called the council, but the council was to discuss the deity of Christ. It was more like, okay, all you kids, get together and figure this out because I'm tired of being the emperor of a split empire doctrinally. We could talk at a different time whether he should have been involved in that or not. But there are other myths like the church took control. So this was kind of the Bart Ehrman approach. The church took control. They destroyed all the other books, the Gospel of Judas and Thomas. Or some would say there was a wide variety of Christian beliefs before this. So who knows what early Christianity was like, which kind of leaves the door open, right? Well, we don't know what it was really like in the first few hundred years because there were various groups and sects. And we'll just, we'll just make up some things like they did. Okay, so let's, let's get to the real question. Did the church choose the Bible or did they receive it? Because if it's the inspired Word of God, and if he, through his Spirit, had these men write his words through their, everything that they are, these men still had their personality in the writing. Is this something received or chosen? Did the early church just lay out, you know, like if we were to walk into the bookstore here and lay out all the books, and did people just go along and pick up what they wanted? This is my favorite. I want A.W. Pink to go in the Bible. (laughs) I want John MacArthur in the Bible. Is that how they did it? Well, only God himself has the authority to tell us what makes up a divinely inspired book. So if it's God's word, it would completely be logical for him to tell us that it's his word. And we've looked at many, many verses, haven't we? when it came to inspiration, that it is God's word. So here's, here's one of those important verses. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Prophecy here is speaking of God's word, which was written down. So that is one of our verses. God himself has... May these things be written down. He moved men to write them. The Spirit was involved in these men as they wrote them. So there would be no error. And they would speak the words that God wanted for his people to have. The other verse. Remember there's two you should really know and teach your kids. And remember that these two: Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And going back. Where was it? Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. Know those. So here's Kevin Van Hooser. He says in his book, The Drama of Doctrine, history alone cannot answer the question of what the canon finally is. Theology alone can do that. Which is a, just a way of saying, we can't just look back at historical records and say, well, the, the Nicene Council and this council and that council. No, this is a theological question. And a theological question is, is this God's word? that God inspired to be written? If so, did God tell us that it's his word? And we know that he did. The early church, number two, did not choose, but only received. Or you can use the word recognize. So it's God's word. He wrote it through these men. And then the church received it. They received what had been handed down to them from the apostles at the beginning. You read books like 1 John. And and John talks about what we received. What we witnessed. We have now told it to you. And Paul says... You know, Timothy, teach what you've learned from me, and then teach others who can teach others also. There's this passing on of the truth, not through word of mouth like the Catholic Church teaches, but from the scriptures. So the best book on this is Canon Revisited. It's a little bit by Michael Kruger. It's a, it's a bit nerdy at points, theological. It's a bit scholarly, but he, he has some great quotes in there. He says, in the early stages of the development of the New Testament, the canonical process, that's... Figuring out which books need to go in our Bible was not so much about the early church choosing books on the basis of some formal criteria as it was a matter of early Christians receiving what had been handed down to them from the very start. I mean, that would be very arrogant and prideful, wouldn't it? To, to have the early church right after the apostles just kind of throw out all the apostles' writings and start from scratch. No, they, just, they just received what was already going around the churches. And we can trace these back to very early, early start in the church. It wasn't like 200 years after Paul died, suddenly letters of his are circulating. No, they're circulating right away. You already see hints of this in Paul's letters. Even Peter talks about some of Paul's letters. J.R. Packer said the church has no more given us the New Testament as a canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity. By his work of creation. And similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. Newton did not create gravity. He recognized it. And that's what we're doing with scripture. We recognize scripture. And it's not some subjective thing. We'll look at that in a moment. Here's another quote from 40 Questions about interpreting the Bible by Rob Plummer. For Protestant Christians, the canon is not an authorized collection of writings and that the church conferred its authority or approval upon the list of books. Rather, the canon is a collection of authoritative writings. So there's a difference there. The, the Pope doesn't get to say, well, this is the Bible because I say it's the Bible. No. God wrote the Bible. And it's a collection of his writings. The Bible, The biblical writings have an inherent authority as works uniquely inspired by God. So what is inherent? Scripture, within Scripture, has an authority, right? The Scripture itself has An inherent authority because it's God's word. Canonization is the process of recognizing. Key word there, recognizing or receiving. Those work. Never say the early church chose the books of the Bible. No, they recognized they received it based on that inherent authority, not bestowing it from an outside source. So they didn't run to Rome because Rome wasn't even that. you know It was just one of the churches back then. It wasn't the church. That didn't happen for hundreds of years. They didn't run to Rome and say, okay, pastor in Rome, Can you please tell us what the Bible is? No, every church had certain letters they recognized as inspired. They may not have every single one. These are the early days. There's not a printing press. You can't go stick it in the photocopier and make a couple of copies of Romans. So you might be in the boondock somewhere in a little church. You don't have every book yet, but as time goes on, you'll get all the books. So how do we know that the books in the canon should be there? Here is the two-pronged approach right here. And we've already looked at this somewhat in a different form earlier in bibliology. Scripture attests to itself. So the Bible says it's the word of God and the books tell us that they are the word of God, which means we should include them in God's holy book. Okay, well that sounds, you know, like any old person could believe that. Any unbeliever could believe that. Well, the second one's important too, the witness of the Holy Spirit. Because if you just have number one, you know you've gone to people and said, this is the word of God, and they said, no, it's not. And you say, yeah, this is the word of God. And they say, no, it's not. What about Islam? What about the Quran? What about these other books? This is where you have to have the Holy Spirit to actually believe this. Do you realize that unbelievers don't have the spiritual capacity to believe all that's in the Bible? Most of what's in the Bible? That's what it means to be a believer. You you believe in Christ, yes, but you believe God's word is true. And so it's a two-pronged thing. The Bible itself says that it is God's word and the witness of the Holy Spirit in the believer says that it is God's word. It it changes your heart, the Spirit does. He changes your heart so you can believe that. That's called regeneration. So here's the Baptist Catechism. This was 1689, I think, and John Piper uh, modified it for his church. The Bible evidences itself to be God's word by the heavenliness of its doctrine. So what, what it, how does it self-authenticate itself? Well, its doctrine is, is heavenly. It's not some crazy, wacky stuff. It's, it's real. It's heavenly. It points us to God. It points us to heaven. It points us to Christ. The unity of its parts, it goes together. You read from Genesis to Revelation, and it just fits perfectly, doesn't it? A man could not come up with that. I've read a lot of good literature. And and some of them are very, very well written. But nothing is unified like the Bible. Over hundreds of years that this was written. Hundreds of years. From 1400, when Moses is writing the Pentateuch, around a little before 1400 B.C. until the last book of the Bible, 90 A.D. Think about that. Only God could make sure that men write books of the Bible over that period of time so that it all fits in one unity. And its power to convert sinners. You read the Bible and people get converted when they read it or when they hear it preach. People come to Christ. It builds up believers. You can read other things. You try to read first and second Maccabees, there's not a lot of building up going on there. There's not a lot of edification going on there. The Bible edifies believers, but only the Spirit of God can make us willing to agree and submit to the Bible as the Word of God. So What's going on in the catechism there is the same two points I listed above. And and Calvin was great at bringing this back in the Reformation and, and emphasizing these two points. And from then, we've tried to do better at that in the church, obviously. But this was still there in the early church. You would find this as well. So let's go now into the Old Testament. God himself wrote the Ten Commandments. We already looked at that when we were talking about inspiration. God commanded the prophets to write down his word. So this is going to be reviewed from the inspiration. If you you believe that God breathed out the scriptures through these men who wrote it down, then you're not going to have a problem with recognizing the Old Testament as canon or the New Testament. So Jesus considered the 39 books of our Old Testament to be the word of God. If we claim to be Christians, we need to agree with what Jesus said. He said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me and the law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms. That's Jesus' way of saying the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament back then. Why? There wasn't a New Testament yet. And that would have been offensive to say the Old Testament. This is a later label that we put on it, the Old and New Testament, based on the Old and New Covenants in the Scriptures. So Jesus says, Moses, well, that's the first five books. The prophets, which are everything from Joshua all the way through the historical books, and then the ones we consider to be prophets. And then the Psalms is a way, because the Psalms is a big book of the writings. So this is a way of saying the law, the prophets, and the writings, which are the three sections of the Old Testament. So it's a way that they would say in this time, all the Bible, because that's all they had when Jesus was saying this. So he considered that to be the word of God. He uses the law and the prophets Five times in the New Testament. And that included all the New Testament. Because the writings sometimes just come in under the prophets. So you could say the Bible in various ways. You could say Moses and the prophets. You could say the law and the prophets. You could say the law and the prophets and the Psalms. You could say the law and the prophets and the writings. All different ways of saying the Bible at the time. Every Old Testament book is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. So if we take the New Testament as true and it points to the Old Testament as Scripture, then we should take that as true. There are some exceptions like Ruth, Ezra, and Song of Solomon. A lot of people find allusions. Allusions in the New Testament pointing back to the Old. Those can be a little tricky, somewhat subjective. Is this really pointing back to something in Ruth? Is this really pointing back to something in Ezra? There are a lot of allusions in the New Testament. But those are the only three. It doesn't mean we throw those out. It just means that those weren't quoted. Well, Kaiser states the New Testament has between two and 4,000 allusions to person, events, or teachings in the Old. So there's a lot of debate, right? Because like I said, it's subjective on allusions. But most would agree there's a couple of thousand allusions, maybe up to 4,000. So when you're reading the New Testament, you don't even realize how many times the author might be pointing back to something in the Old. And you have to know the old really well. And then you start reading the new and you think, oh, wow, I've seen this now in the Old Testament. That reminds me of this and that reminds me of that. So here's a council in AD 90. And this was a council of Pharisees, of Jews, of rabbis. And after Jerusalem was destroyed, they got together and they said, look, we lost a lot of scripture. We lost a lot of scrolls, I should say, in Jerusalem. We need to nail down and make a list of... The books that are God's word. So later generations can see this. So there was a discussion. What exactly is in the Hebrew Bible? There's a lot of people writing strange things these days, they said. And they didn't throw out any book that had previously been included. Nor did they add any books. So the same books that the apostles would have had. The same books Jesus would have had of the Old Testament. They affirmed all of those. Nor did they say, oh hey, something has recently been written. You know, the... The strange things that are out there have been written. Is it the bell and the dragon? Or is it Daniel and Susanna? I can't remember all of these apocrypha. Daniel and Susanna. These additions that people made to Daniel back then. They didn't say, this looks very much like God wrote it. Let's throw it in. No, it's the same ones that Jesus had already recognized. And the apostles and everybody during that day. So here it is. First century. On the left here. And then on the right is the way we do it today. So first five books, the law, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then the prophets. So there's former prophets. We call these historical books, but they consider these prophets. Why? Because they're speaking the words of God. Everybody knew Moses was a prophet, but that's called the law because he's the law giver. Now we have other people speaking for God. These are called the prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Now we divide those up, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. So we get some more books out of that. That's one of the reasons there's 24 books on the Jewish list, 39 on our Christian list. And then you have the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 12 minor prophets. And then the writings are everything else. Now there's a couple of books in the writings that we don't expect to be there, right? What do you see in the writings that you think might be in the, should be in the prophets? Daniel. You see Daniel there? We consider Daniel a prophet. So if you move over to the right, that's our Bible today in the Old Testament. Daniel's listed as a major prophet. They consider Daniel in the writings, So we won't go into reasons why and whether that has to be that way. Also, some of these writings we consider more historical, don't we? Like Ezra Nehemiah or the Chronicles. Seems to be a lot of history in there. So we, we think of those more as historical books. And uh, yeah, the Psalms... Obviously, in the writings, Job, Proverbs. Usually, this is wisdom literature. Ruth, we think of as historical. So, they had a different way that they spoke of those books, but they're the same books. And so, if you did the math, even though we have 39 and they had 24, it's the same books. They just divided some, right? Ezra and Nehemiah was one book. We consider it two books. First and second Kings was just Kings. Why? Why was first and second Samuel just Samuel? Because when they translate it into Greek to make up what's called the Septuagint. So you go from Hebrew to Greek. So people before, right before the apostles and Jesus and after it, they only read Greek. And many of them had lost their Hebrew even in the land of Israel. And so they translated it so they could understand it into the modern language at that time, which was Greek. And when they did that, it doesn't always fit nicely on one scroll. Translations don't shrink the words they multiply words, right? Because you have to find more words to explain. And especially with Hebrew, which is very condensed. You don't even have all the, the vowels. You just have little points at the bottom. And so they expanded it, and hey, it doesn't all fit. So we got to divide kings somewhere. Let's divide it here. This is part one. This is part two. It's one book, but it becomes two books as we think about it today. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second chronicles. So the early church recognized this as well. One of the famous writers here, Eusebius, wrote a lot about the early church history. And he said in 170, there was this guy, Melito, Bishop of Sardis. He said, when I came to the east and reached the place where these things were preached and done and learnt accurately the books of the Old Testament, I set down the facts and sent them to you. So here's Bishop Milito's, here's his list of the Old Testament books. There's five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Joshua, the son of Nun, judges Ruth. Four books of kingdoms, two books of Chronicles, the Psalms of David, the Proverbs of Solomon and his wisdom. So the, the kingdoms, the four books, they're including Samuel. So first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. Then there's two books, the Chronicles, Psalms of David, Proverbs, wisdom, Ecclesiastes, Song, Songs, Job, Prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the twelve in a single book, Daniel, Ezekiel, Ezra. So he has quite the list there. So what's missing from his list? He doesn't list Lamentations. Probably uh, assumed that it would be with Jeremiah. It's always been thought that Jeremiah wrote it. And sometimes when people speak of the prophet Jeremiah's writings, that would be included. Nehemiah is not listed separately, but it, Ezra is. And the Jews thought of it as one book. Esther's missing. No reason why. He may, maybe he didn't have a copy in his church. None of the Apocrypha are listed, though. That's important. Today, all these extra books that the Catholics have added, that the Eastern Orthodox have added. Well, the 170 AD, there's no mention of them by this guy. So if they were the inspired word of God, you would think you would have a few floating around that he could list as books of the Bible. Here's Jerome. He's the one who took the, the Bible and translated it from the Hebrew and from the Greek. So the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament. He puts it in the common language of his day, which is Latin. Now, Jerome, you know, he kind of gets a bad rap because the Vulgate has some issues over time and the Catholic Church gets all kinds of wrong thinking from it. But Jerome was just trying to do a good thing. He was trying to bring the Bible over into the language of the empire. The Roman Empire spoke Latin. And if you want Romans to read it, it's better that it's in Latin. By this time, Koine Greek wasn't the most common language spoken. It was Latin. So he's trying to do a faithful job. And he says in his introduction... As then, the church reads, and here's some apocryphal books, Judith, Tobit, and the books of Maccabees, but does not admit them among the canonical scriptures. So let it also read these two volumes for edification of the people, not to give authority to the doctrines of the church. So this is like saying, go go get Pilgrim's Progress out of the bookstore and read it, because it's going to help you grow in the faith. Well, they didn't have Pilgrim's Progress. They didn't have all the books we have. They had a few extra books outside the Bible that might help a person grow as a Christian to kind of see how others have talked about it or help about the history of Israel like the Maccabees. But they weren't considered God's word. They weren't considered scripture. I saw this to show you how hard it is to master the book of Daniel, which in Hebrew contains neither the story of Susanna. So this story was floating around at the time, but they didn't recognize it. Nor the hymn of the three youths, nor the fables of Bell and the dragon. So when you get out, hopefully you don't, well, if you have one, let's just say it's for apologetic purposes at home. If you have a Catholic Bible and you get it out and look at it, it might, it will have some of these listed. They recognize all of these, right? Yeah, Bell and the Dragon, History of Susanna, what's the hymn of the three youths? Yeah, but I guess they wrote a hymn, that the Catholic Church believes, in the Eastern Orthodox. They, they have websites that compare what they've added to Daniel, and it's like red if they've added it on this side, and here's the the text we have that's Actual God's Word. By the way, this book here at the bottom. The Church of Rome at the Bar of History. We had to read that in seminary. It's a great book. If you're really interested in comparing what the Roman Catholic Church says about their beliefs and their Bible and all of that to what actually happened in early church history, get that book. We we should have a copy in the bookstore. I think it's a Banner of Truth book, but it's just wonderful. In response to the Reformers' rejection of the Apocrypha as Scripture, the Roman Catholic Church said... And they excommunicated you if you didn't agree with them. If anyone does not accept as sacred and canonical the aforesaid books in their entirety and with all their parts, as they have been accustomed to be read in the Catholic Church and as they are contained in the Old Latin Vulgate edition, and knowingly and deliberately rejects the aforesaid traditions, let him be anathema. So, yes, Jerome translated them or put them at the end kind of as an appendix. Bibles have done that, the King James Bible did that in 1611. They had a section on the Apocrypha, but they made really clear this is not Scripture. These are some books that have hung around for hundreds of years that you might get some edification from, but they're not Scripture. That really blows people. King James only, it kind of blows their mind. If you get the introduction to the King James that the translators wrote and you read that, and then you see they they added the Apocrypha in there kind of as an appendix, and you talk to a King James only person today, it's just So how did they recognize it? The first Christians had the preaching and teaching of the apostles. So if you've got the apostle Paul there, you know, you're not saying, now the Bereans did check Paul, but they checked him in the Old Testament. If you have Paul preaching to you, you're not saying, oh, I don't know, Paul. I don't have Peter's books. I don't have Luke and I don't have Mark. No, that's, this is the apostle Paul. You're listening to what he says. And then Marcionite heresy, I've already mentioned. They motivated church leaders, Marcion did, to begin writing lists. So Marcion himself made his list. And then other people are like, well, hey, if this heretic is going to make his list, we better make a list of the true books so Christians can learn and not be confused. So he composes on unique canon, Marcion did. He left out all the Old Testament, any New Testament scriptures that mentioned the Jews or Jewish religion. Even in the books that remained in Marcion's Bible, which was composed of Luke and 10 of Paul's epistles, he further edited Luke's writing to cut out Christ's genealogy, his birth narrative, his baptism, all references, Nazareth and Bethlehem. So we better get our own list of books if Marcion's publishing his heretical list. Marcion's fundamental argument was that God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were actually two different gods. Still around the church today, you got this wrath of God in the Old Testament, you got a, wrath, a God of love in the New Testament. Must be two gods, he said. This was clearly in opposition to the early church's view of a unity between the old and new. The Orthodox church at this time don't think Eastern Orthodox. Orthodox just means right doctrine. So The, the church with the right doctrine, the true church. Their view of the complete canon can be seen clearly as early as the 2nd century. Tertullian claimed Marcion was the first person to separate the New Testament from the Old. All Christians at that time believed they were together. And Martian said, let's start taking some scissors to our Bible. In other words, according to Tertullian, no one had previously tried to separate the Old from the New. Polycarp 150. He's the disciple of John the Apostle. He quotes from Matthew, John, 10 of Paul's epistles. Peter and Second John. So now we're on to the, the New Testament books. Polycarp probably was discipled by the Apostle John as a young person. He dies when he's very old in his 80s. He, he's martyred. There's an early, early account of his martyrdom in Corne in Greek. but he wrote about this in his letters, quoting from Matthew, John. 10 of Paul's epistles, Peter, and Second John. So we've got a big chunk of the New Testament already affirmed, very early, recognized. Justin Martyr, on the same time, he wrote, the four Gospels were written by the apostles and their companions. So if Jesus told the apostles, you go and you speak my word and the Spirit will be with you, we should accept their writings as God's word. Irenaeus 170 quoted from almost every book in the New Testament, except Philemon, James, 2 Peter, and Third John. Now, you can't throw out those books because he didn't quote them. I mean, I, I don't quote every passage of Scripture, probably in all the sermons I've preached yet. Sometimes you just don't reference other books in your writings. He could have spoken about these books. Maybe he had copies. Maybe they were, they were hard to get at that time. Remember, it's not a combined book. It was the 300s before you did this right here, where you put them together. It's called a codex. You put all the scrolls, and you, well, you put them in, in parchments. That's even better. And you bind them here together so that you can do this thing. And those were very expensive. Very expensive. They would chain them to a chain. They would put a chain in the church and chain them to the podium so people didn't steal them. So expensive. Maybe if you were wealthy, you had a copy. But the scrolls, the first 300 years, you just have scrolls. And they're just working their way around the churches. And somebody would copy it and they would keep spreading. So Moratorium Canon is a big one. in 170, this list developed probably as a result of Marcion and Montanus heresies. So this is why heresies are, you know, useful. God uses heretical teaching to motivate the church to get in gear and do something. And in this case, the church got in gear and said, these are the books of scripture. We've always recognized these books. Now here it is on paper. Here's Here's your table of contents. This list included almost our entire current New Testament, in addition to some other books. The Apocalypse of Peter is listed, but noted as opposed by some, the Shepherd of Hermas was accepted for private reading, but not public. All Marcionite, Gnostic, and Montanist writings were rejected as non-authoritative. So there's gonna be some extra books in this list because he's just making a comment on what the church has. So that's what it looks like. Can y'all read that? That's his list right there. There's no spaces really. You gotta save space. This stuff's expensive to write on. Parchment. You know, you gotta get it from Egypt, especially made. You save space, you write it in all capital letters. So here's a, a nice little comparison from Wikipedia here. The moratorium canon is on the left, the right green boxes that is our canon today. So it looks like he did not have listed Hebrews, James, first and Second Peter. Why? Because it's in the early church, and he didn't have copy in his church. First John is probably listed. I think maybe there they're uncertain. probably can't read the writing, or there's a, a mess- up or a hole there in his manuscript. The same with second and third John, maybe. But he's got Jude. He's also got Revelation. That's the Apocalypse of John. Now he's got Apocalypse of Peter and the Wisdom of Solomon. Those are apocryphal books. But he mentions that those are argued over. Those are argued over. But he's got all the other books we have today. Very early church history reference. Now we go up to 200. Very similar list as Irenaeus. He doesn't have 2 Timothy and 2 John. So all of our books are there somewhere. Depends on the church, right? And you can imagine, hey, we've got, we just now have a copy of 2 Timothy. And the church hears about it, you know, across the Mediterranean. Oh, can we send our scribe down there to make a copy? We want one of those. That, we know that's God's word. This is more a matter of finances and time to get these out there. Eusebius, around 300, lists three classifications. So we're really going to look at Eusebius for a minute. Because he puts everything he's got into three categories. The recognized books the disputed books, the heretical books. So now we're getting much more clear on what the early church thought. So here's the ones that have been recognized. The four Gospels, Acts, 14 Pauline epistles, which includes Hebrews, because all the early church thought Paul wrote Hebrews. We won't go into that right now. Though he's aware that the church in Rome did not hold Hebrews to be Pauline. So everybody but the Roman church. First Peter, First John, and apparently... Though with some reservation, the apocalypse. So it sounded a bit strange to Eusebius. Eusebius had some uh, interesting new developments that were happening at the time theologically, that were being made popular, and, and he he kind of wondered if the book of Revelation was too fantastical to be in the Bible. But he did list it because the church recognized it. Eusebius, yeah, he's just kind of documenting as a historian, yeah. But he was at the Council of Nicaea when he was young, not that they discussed the Bible there, but. I'm sure I'm sure they had side discussions, but that wasn't the topic of the council. Dis- disputed books. Question?: Oh, that's right. Disputed books into these generally accepted groups here. So here's ones that we're having some discussion over. James, Jude, second Peter, second and third John and those that are not genuine. Acts of Paul, Shepherd of Hermas, Apocalypse of Peter, Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, and perhaps the Apocalypse. So, Eusebius is saying, look, there's still some debate between some of these Bible scholars. Maybe Eusebius himself had some questions. And so, he just kind of threw these in. Now, it's interesting. Martin Luther had some issues with some of these books, too. He was not a big fan of James. I think it was James, the book of James, that he called an Epistle of Straw. And He couldn't make it jive with with justification by faith alone. And so he thought James had some problems. Not to say he didn't consider it scripture. He just felt like it wasn't, you know, it was barely making the cut. And I think some of the reformers had some issues with Esther because, you know, Esther doesn't mention God's name a lot. If, If you really get into Esther, she's not really being all that godly in any of her actions and words. But I'll leave that for my Old Testament survey class. Really, what's his name? Her uncle. Mordecai. He's the, he's the hero of Esther. But she's the, she's the queen, so she gets the name on there. The Didache is an early handbook of the Christian life. Very good book. Doesn't have anything bad, really, in it. Now, heretical writings. Everybody knew at the time this thing going around called the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Thomas was heretical. The Gospel of Andrew Andrew and John. There was a gospel called the, the Acts of Andrew and John. And other similar writings. So they all recognize those are bad. Probably because the teaching was so bad. The Epistle of Barnabas, if you read it in the Shepherd of Hermas, it's just weird. In my church history class, I quote some of these. And I think it's the, the Shepherd of, no, it's, is it the Epistle of Barnabas? One of them, this big whale, he has a vision. And this big whale just flops up on the land and belches out all this stuff. And speaks to him through the belching. It's really strange. All right, now we have a manuscript. It's called Cheltenham. I think that's where it's at today in a, in a family that owns it in England. It's a North African manuscript from 360 AD. This is what the churches in North Africa believe. North Africa at the time is part of the Roman Empire. That's where Augustine was. These are Romans living in North Africa. These are where all the farms are. This is like the south of the Roman Empire. This manuscript that, that has a list of Bible books includes all the New Testament books except Hebrew, James, and Jude. Okay, now we get to the big one, Athanasius. Okay, I'm going to read this because Athanasius is the first to include the whole list that we have today. Which means it's taken this long to get enough copies circulating that all these writers can agree on this. Before then, let's say Frank's, you know, he, he's up in Dallas and he says, I've got 66 books. And I say, what are you talking about? I've only got, you know, 65. And we get into this big debate on who's got the real Bible. And then one day, a couple of other churches send us copies of that last one. Oh, okay. Sorry, Frank. We just didn't have a copy sent to us yet, you know? Our copy machine wasn't working. I'll go over all this in church history. So go to our website if you're really interested and you can go through some of this. Um, Athanasius. Again, it is not tedious to speak of the books of the New Testament. These are the four Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Afterwards, the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles. They were called the Catholic Epistles, meaning they were generally sent to all the churches. There are seven of those, James, Peter, John. After these, one of Jude. In addition, there are 14 Epistles of Paul written in this order. The first to the Romans, then two to the Corinthians. After these, to the Galatians. Next, to the Ephesians. Then to the Philippians. Then to the Colossians. After these, two to the Thessalonians that to the Hebrews. And again, two to Timothy, one to Titus. And lastly, that to Philemon. And besides, the revelation of John. So there's one thing you should notice about the order here. It's different than ours. Anybody notice? This is the order that the Bible, the New Testament was, was in Athanasius today. How it was listed. The general epistles are first. Not in our Bibles though, right? You get to the end of Acts and what's the next book? Romans. And their Bibles, you get to the end of Acts, and what's next? James. Some, some was Hebrews. So, a lot of times, an early Greek Bible would have the general epistles to all the churches, and then Paul's epistles, which were to specific churches. John Frame said, When in AD 367, Bishop Athanasius of Alexandria published a list of books accepted in his church, there was no clamor. From that time on, Christians of all traditions, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, protestant agreed on the New Testament canon. So at least we all agree that those books are scripture. They add extras. Indeed, through the centuries since, agreement on the New Testament canon has been more unanimous than on the Old Testament canon. Though on the surface, it might seem that ascertaining the former would have been more difficult. So people really attack the New Testament today. And that's generally where you're going to get unbelievers kind of complaining. How do we know this is the word of God? but they may go to the Old Testament as well if they want to try to throw you off. So now we're up to 397 in church history. There's all these different meetings. We'll just call them conferences. There's pastor conferences happening. One is in Hippo where Augustine is and in Carthage, right close to where Augustine is. These councils were under his influence. At this regional council, at these regional councils, the New Testament canon was ratified. It was agreed and it looks like exactly what we have in our New Testament today. So that's it. There's no use to talk about it at 325 in Nicaea because everybody already knew what the Bible was. There wasn't, no dis- there wasn't disagreement. There were two disagreements at the Council of Nicaea. The deity of Christ and anybody else know the other one? Big deal. It was big deal to the early church. The date of Easter. You've got to get the date of Easter right because there's a lot of disagreements. Now, we're not as concerned about that, but we normally go with what they decided there. But if you ever wonder why Easter doesn't always match up with Passover, And there's kind of this thing going on. The Council of Nicaea, that's why. So there's some early Bibles where they put them all together. Now we're in the 300s, the Codex Vaticanus. It was found in the Vatican. That's why it's called that. Codex means it's bound up like we think of a book today. It has all the Bible, almost all. There's some that are missing, probably either fallen out in some of these codices or just weren't around to put them in. They were around. They weren't around in that scribal place that was doing the work. It is considered to be one of the best manuscripts of the New Testament text. You've got Sinaiticus. Very interesting story here. Don't have time for the whole thing. But basically in the 1800s, this German guy was rummaging around in the monasteries of Egypt. He goes to Mount Sinai. There's a monastery there. He finds some stuff in the trash can. Basically, he looks at this scraps of and he says, Wow, that's some early Greek. Let's put some of these scraps together. He puts them in his briefcase, goes back home, puts them together. He says, Oh, this is a very early Bible. Then he sneaks back down to the monastery, grabs the whole thing off the shelf, <laughs> takes it home. And some people haven't been happy since. But There's one that was found near Alexandria, Egypt, Codex Alexandrinus. So these are very early, complete books of the Bible. Codex Bezai, this is one that it goes back to about 450, named after Theodore Beza, who followed Calvin in Geneva, because Beza had a copy of it. And that's why we call it, that. I'm not sure there were any other copies previous to his. Contains the Gospels plus the Book of Acts and is written in both Greek and Latin. And then here's one, uh, Washingtonensis. Why do you think it's called that? It has the four Gospels. Very early, 450 AD. George Washington wasn't around then. Because it's today, I think it's still in Washington, D.C. So that one was just named after where it's located today. And Clara Montanus. This contains the Pauline Epistles around 500. I think also named name for where it is today. So that's what it looks like. Open it up. Codex Sinaiticus. You have to get your magnifying glass out. And you can read that. Codex Alexandrinus. So there's Mark, a portion of Mark 6. And then a, a lighter page. Or maybe they just had more light on it. The end of Luke. You can kind of see some of the drawings. They, they were starting to illustrate some things here at certain points. Tell you there's a chapter break. Or to tell you there's a, a book break. They didn't really have chapters back then. So let's just say book break. Here it looks like somebody put their stamp on it, the Vaticanus, but it's actually the, the first letter at the top. It looks like a K, the Kappa. They're, they're starting to illustrate that. All right. We don't have time for Gnostic Gospels. This is when all the fun starts here. There's Gnostic Gospels and Pseudepigrapha. So come back next week for this. This is where all the false stuff starts to come in. There's, there's Apocrypha, just to be clear. Apocrypha are books that the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church think should be added to the Old Testament. Apocrypha, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, 3rd and 4th Maccabees, all these other crazy books. Then there's books that get written after the New Testament that some people, mostly liberals today, and Gnostic people, want to add to the New Testament. But most Christian groups don't acknowledge these. But they're still fun to look at. So we'll run through those next week and we'll talk about The preaching and teaching of the Bible and why that's important. And I think we're done with Bibliology. Anybody got a schedule handy? Are we done with it next week? Yeah, then we start Theology Proper the first Sunday in November. Okay, good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning and just to look at church history to see how your word was received. It was recognized. Uh, This was not something that was determined by men, but determined by you. We're thankful that the Spirit moves in us to believe your word, to believe that it is your word. And we're thankful you've preserved it, Lord. So help us to continue on in faith, knowing we have the sure word of God. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen.